Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, good morning. If you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6 and then uh, 17 through 31. You can follow along with me in your own Bible if you brought one. You can also uh, use the the Pew Bible that's in front of you. You can also uh, follow along in the bulletin where it's been provided as well if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's so great to have you with us. Uh, We're glad you're here. We know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could still be in line at Cruise Farm downtown. Those lines just go all night, uh, but you've gotten out of that line. Uh, You could be at the Smoky Mountain Swim Meet, which many families are at this morning. Uh, You could be having breakfast at Wimbledon, or you could still be shooting off fireworks, which fortunately are beginning to slow down in my neighborhood. Uh, But not done. Uh, 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 But you're not doing any of those things. Uh, You're here, and I do want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the beauty of the redemption that he has worked for us through his cross. And so I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and uh, what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, uh, we are a people who believe that, that Jesus is God, uh, that he's the Messiah, that he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight, who love to get together with one another and stand in line at Cruise Farm and watch uh, soccer and Argentina win and read the Bible and pray so that we can remind one another of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God, we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and as we remind and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, this summer we've been in the book of Daniel, and one of the reasons we've done that was because I was in and out of town, and we could bring people in and out, and the stories are so great. But really we wanted to do it because the stories of the book of Daniel are amazing. And uh, the book of Daniel is really about these young men and women who have been brought out of the world that they know into a foreign world, and they are reminded that God remains the same. 
They're in this different world, but God remains the same. And so throughout this series, we've talked about a different world. We've talked about a different way of knowing, a different kingdom, a different allegiance, a different praise. And this morning, what I want us to consider is this different feast that God gives us, a different feast. So with that in mind, let's look together. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, then 17 through 31. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a hand, of a human hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Down to verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation, O king. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Uh, Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. 
That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, that you're a God not hidden or silent, but one who loves and delights to reveal yourself, to make yourself known. And so, Father, it's our prayer that now as we attend unto your word, you would attend unto us uh, by your spirit. You would reveal beautiful things of yourself to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if any of you have seen this hip, cool new musical in the West End of London. Uh, It's called uh, Les Mis. It's French for the miserables. Uh, But anyway, uh, if if you've seen it, you might remember that it's set during the French Revolution. And there is this group of revolutionaries and they've built this barricade. And the revolution has begun. And as the night begins to fall, they, they go to the barricade, they gather together in the barricade, awaiting the retaliation from the larger troops. They go to the barricade, preparing to die, reflecting upon their life. They gather together, they dance with women, and they sing, because that's what you do in musicals. And uh, they sing this song, uh, Drink With Me, right? Uh, Drink with me, you know, today's gone by, to the life, to the life. Uh, that used that used to be uh, at the shrine of friendship never say die let the wine of friendship never run dry here's to you here's to me and uh, what's really fascinating about this scene there in the barricade as they gather together they know that there's this larger army that is coming for them they know that they're probably going to be defeated and there they sit in the barricade and they're contemplating their life and in and their death and they not just sing but they do something more they also drink uh, they drink in hope uh, as they face death And that's what's going on in our passage. Uh, Death is coming to the Babylonian Empire. The Medo-Persian army is at the gates. And so King Belshazzar gathers his friends, verse 1, and made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. And so he throws this feast with wine and with women and they make toast to their gods in hopes that their gods might save them. And by recording this story in the Bible, uh, Daniel wants us to see that God is our only hope. That in in the face of death, God is our only hope. God is our only hope. Would you say that with me? God is our only hope. Now to understand this feast, it's really important to realize that this is the end The strongest, the most powerful kingdom that the world knew at the time is about to come to an end. And I think that this is incredibly humbling to us because Babylon was powerful and then it wasn't. Babylon was powerful. It was everything and then it wasn't. And in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is inviting us into those final hours If you pull the threads of history together, it seems as if Belshazzar would have known that the end was coming. 
You can go to the British Museum if you would like to, and you can read the Cyrus Cylinder, or you can re read the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicles, both of which are 6th century BC Persian and Babylonian artifacts that recount the fall of Babylon. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you don't have the money to get to uh, Britain or to London, you can just go and you can read the ancient historians, uh, Herodotus or Cyropedia or Xenophon, or you can just Google uh, <laughs> the fall of the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. And when you do, what you'll begin to see is that, uh, that Daniel's inviting us into those last hours on October 29th, 539 B.C., when according to those records, just about three weeks earlier, 50 miles away from the capital city at the Battle of Opus, the Persian army led by Cyrus the Great defeated, soundly defeated, routed the Babylonian army. And that battle was much like D-Day in World War II, which signaled the end, but they still waited for the end. And so here we are in our passage, we're 23 years after uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar left the capital city. He left it in the hands of his regent Belshazzar, which makes sense of why Belshazzar in verse 7, verse 16, verse 29 says, whoever can interpret the handwriting will be third in command. Third in command, because as Nebuchadnezzar is the king, Belshazzar is second, and he would offer the third in command to whoever could interpret the handwriting. Anyway, the Persians have now turned their army towards the capital city, and Belshazzar has locked the gates, and there they are, hoping to be safe and secure within the city walls of Babylon. And so what do they do? Uh, they throw this party <laughs> Well, what else would you do with an army outside the gates but throw a party? Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And this party that he's throwing, it seems to get pretty rowdy. You see this in verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And I want you to think about this party for a second. This party would have been rowdier than anything a Kappa Sig could ever imagine. Uh, they are just filled with drink and the, the king seems to be on the stage leading the drinking games. Uh, he says, bring in the sacred vessels of God, of Yahweh, as if to say, we defeated Yahweh Remember the victories of the past. Remember how Yahweh seemed so big, but Yahweh was defeated by us. Yahweh was defeated by our gods, and our god Marduk and all of his friends, they can defeat the Persians as well. And they began toasting to their gods, mocking the God of heaven, mocking the God of earth, and then they bring their wives and their concubines to join in. The commentator, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, says it this way. He says, this is the triple trouble of wine and women and worship. And, uh, but we know that the problem isn't wine or women or trouble. Wine and women and trouble are gifts from God. They're not a problem. They're not the trouble. The problem, the trouble, is actually the arrogance of humanity, the problem is the arrogance of man, that not, not just that we as humanity have turned away from God, but we tend to mock him even in our time of trouble. 
And God sees the mockery and he's sort of fed up with it. He's tired of it. And there in the middle of the party comes the writing on the wall. Uh, Verse five. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And I love the detail that's recorded for us in in this text. Opposite the lampstand. If if you want to know where it was, opposite the lampstand, lit up for everyone to see. And could you imagine being at this party and seeing not just a human writing on the wall, but just a human hand writing on the wall? I mean, you'd be looking for the invisibility cloak, you know, seeing what hand has just popped out. Uh, But this is actually the hand of heaven reaching into this place. It's the hand of heaven reaching down and revealing to the world that he is the king and he is our only hope. And when they see this hand, I would assume that they probably sobered up pretty quickly. Verse six, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and knees knocked together. Uh, The king sees the hand and he is absolutely terrified. This king has been mocking God. He's been drinking to his past victories, attributing everything that he has to Marduk and the other gods of Babylon. And I think what's really fascinating and really funny in this text is that in the Hebrew, uh, it literally says the joints of his loins were loosened. Uh, That's just another way of saying the king soiled himself. And imagine this, there is the king on stage. He's been like leading the keg stands. He's been boasting, get the gold. And there he is standing in front of all of the princes and all the authorities, all the women. And there he is and he's soiled himself for everyone to see. And if you think about the the context, you think about the moment with armies of Persia outside, that would not be a very kingly nor Uh, would it inspire much confidence in what might be happening? And so here's the deal. God cannot be mocked, right? God cannot be mocked. He is our only hope. God is our only hope. Would you say that with me? God is our only hope. Now, the writing is on the wall. You see it in verse 25, Mene, Mene, Tikel, and Parison, uh, which we learn then in verse 26 through 28 means numbered, weighed, and wanting, divided. Numbered. What he's saying to Belshazzar and to the Babylonian Empire is that your days are numbered. The empire is coming to an end. And Daniel had already told this back in Daniel chapter 2. You remember he saw the image of this big image, the golden head, the silver torso, and the clay, and all that sort of stuff, the bronze. And what he's saying is that the golden head of Babylon is being destroyed. The silver kingdom of Persia is coming, and then another will come, and another will come, and another will come, until the great kingdom of God comes, having torn them all down and fills the entire earth. And what's really fascinating to me is that Babylon had its place in world history, Persia had its place in world history, the Greeks, the Romans, the French, the British, the Lakers, uh, Federer, uh, um, uh, they all had their place. Cities, 
individuals, ideas all have their time and all have their place, but their days are numbered. Our days are numbered. And they will come to an end. And how then will our days then be evaluated? Uh, verse 25, uh, mene tikel, uh, weighed and wanting. And God is saying to Belshazzar, I've, I've seen you. I've seen your arrogance. I've seen your boasting. I've seen your power. I've seen your glory. And it is wanting in my sight. Literalistically, what he's saying is that the weightiness of your importance is light to me. God is saying that the weightiness of your perceived importance is light to me. What's interesting is that many commentators say that Mene, Tikel, and Parson, they were units of weight on a scale. And so what God is saying is, I've put your works, I've put your life, I've put your boasts, I've put your glory on the scales, and they are light. They're lacking. And I think that this is amazing because the very things that make us feel significant and important, the very things that we boast in, those, those very parts of our life where we think we don't actually need God, those are actually the places we need him the most. Now, if we think about this image of the scales being measured and found wanting, I, I think the question for us would be, what would they be measured against? Well, it seems to me uh, that uh, they're measured against the weightiness of God. In the Hebrew, uh, the word kavod is the word that we use for glory, and it means the weightiness. It means filled with substance. And what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar, your glory, your perceived sense of weightiness is light, it's lacking, it is nothing, it is wanting before the very glory and substance of God. I've used this with many of you before, so forgive me for just being redundant, but you can think about the glory of man and the glory of God like this. Think about a chocolate Easter bunny. Uh, a solid chocolate Easter bunny is glorious. <laughs> A hollow East chocolate Easter bunny is disappointing, right? When you see that bunny and you bite into it and it crumbles, there's nothing to it, right? But when it's solid and you bite into it, it's sturdy, it's stable, it's life-giving, right? And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's what's happening here. He's saying, look, your life is like a hollow chocolate Easter bunny. It just crumbles under the weight and the substance of something that is solid. And so Daniel is saying to Belshazzar, drink up because you and your kingdom are but a, shallow, uh, but a shadow. They're hollow and they're fleeting, but God is strong and God is solid. He's saying God's your only hope. Right, God is our only hope. Would you say that with me? God is our only hope. But the Babylonians, they just continue to lift up themselves. They glorified in their own name. You see it in verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. It just repeats that two or three times. So they're drinking. Everyone's drinking. They're drinking. They're drinking out of the vessels. They're drinking out of the vessels. And then it ends. And uh, he says... Uh, 
uh, where is it? And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And what they're doing here is that they're lifting up their cups to their victories and they are praising their gods who they think have made them successful. And their gods who they think have made them powerful. And yet what's really beautiful, I think, is that Daniel doesn't even name their gods by name. He doesn't say Marduk and Baal and Sin. He just calls them the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron wood. He, he names them by what they're made of. And by doing this, what he's saying is when you lift your cup to drink and to boast in something other than God, you, you lift it up to nothing. It, it's empty, it's shallow, it, it's foolishness. It reminds me of my favorite joke uh, by Stephen Wright. I heard it back when I was in high school. He said, I bought some powdered water, but I didn't know what to add, right? And uh, just think about it for a second. It'll, it'll hit you. Uh, and, uh, and that's sort of what's going on here. I mean, it's just empty. It's nothing. What do you do with what you're doing? It's nothing. There's foolishness. And you're lifting your cup to nothing before the weightiness and the glory of God. And I wonder, even as Christians, I mean, we just sort of do the same thing, but we put Jesus on it. And we sort of boast in our religion, and we evaluate ourselves, and we evaluate if we're doing our Christianity right all the time. And, and then we put it on the scales to measure it against one another. And so we put our religious works on the scales, our, our prayers, our Bible knowledge, our attendance, our sanctification, our mission trips, our quiet times, our soul care. And we put them on the scales and we measure ourselves against one another. Thinking that all these things that we're doing, those are the things that make me weighty. Those are the things that, that make me glorious. But if we're honest, uh, does that lead to confidence in the world? Or does it merely lead to anxiety? If you're like me, every time I put something on the scales to evaluate... I know that I'm wanting and I'm measuring myself against you or someone else. And when we do this, we're really like Belshazzar, lifting up not God, but lifting up ourselves. And listen to the warning from God in verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. In verse 23, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, you lose your glory, right? You lose the weight of your life when you turn away from the God who is glorious. When you turn away from the one who has given you everything, you lose your way in this world. And I think that this is important for us, especially as Christians, to be reminded of because the world is constantly telling us that we don't need God. We don't need God to build the utopia and to build the society we want. We can build our kingdom without the king. And even as Christians, we're tempted to think in this way that, that, that Christianity really is about getting to a place where we don't need Jesus anymore. 
And then we become like Hugh Jackman and Michelle Williams and the greatest showman singing. They can say, they can say, it all sounds crazy. They can say, they can say, we've lost our mind. I don't care, I don't care, so call me crazy, right? We can live in a world that we design. But as Christians, and really as humans, we will never be able to design our own world. We actually live and must live in the world that God has designed. And until we're willing to submit to him, we will lose our way within this world. Until we submit to him, we'll be light and wanting. But when we submit to him, verse 22, when we humble ourselves before God, right, when we lift him up, our God then lifts us up. When we lift him up, he settles us and makes us solid and stable in him. Because the Babylonians were lifting themselves up, this is why they were parsoned. This is why they were divided. The kingdom was taken from the Babylonians. The kingdom was then given to the Persians because of their arrogance. And so Daniel tells us in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And whenever you continue, if you ever read the Bible uh, from this point on, uh, judgment is usually talked about in terms of the fall of Babylon. Uh, Even the final judgment in Revelation 18, listen to the sound. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a singular hour... All this wealth has been laid to rest. It's amazing. And what what it's saying is that the powers and the luxuries and the riches and the splendors that we all boast in, the splendors that we long for, those splendors that we actually live for, they'll be gone. Like in a singular hour, they will be gone and they are nothing. They are wanting, they are light compared to the glory and the beauty and the power of the presence of our God. And here's the point. Uh, Even at the final judgment, in this life, our only hope is God. God is our only hope. God is our only hope. Would you say that with me? God is our only hope. And what I find amazing about the fall of Babylon, again, and I alluded to this earlier, is that all the powers of this earth come to an end. The Babylonians came to an end, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when French uh, was the international language politically. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but my friend Josh uh, Flory reminded me of this, that there was a time when the sun didn't set on the British Empire. Things have changed. And all powers and all nations, though they have their day, uh, there will be a day when all powers and all nations will have to bow their knee to King Jesus. And this is good news. It's disruptive news. (laughs) 
When a kingdom falls, it's disruptive. But it is good news, and it is good news because the kingdoms of this world will not reign and rule forever. I've been thinking a lot about the nation of Haiti this week uh, for obvious reasons. A nation that had been exploited by French colonialism, a nation that has been undone year after year by corrupt officials, uh, a nation that has had uh, assassination attempt after assassination attempt, and then this week had a successful assassination attempt. You, you know, scale that out. And you think about authoritarian regimes like Nazi Germany, China, North Korea. You can think about the inequalities uh, as you survey the West. You can think about uh, the long-term impact and ramifications of the slave trade. You, you can think about the corruption and the pride of humanity and the pride of man in the world. And here's the good news. Uh, that will all come to an end. That will all come to an end and the true King Jesus will return and he will restore all things to the Father. And when this happens, there will be a new feast that gets ushered in. Not a feast where we lift our cups to ourselves and not a feast where we lift our cups to the Fuhrer, uh, but a feast where we will lift our cups to him who has saved us. We, we, will, we will lift our cups and we will feast with one another and we will celebrate the God who loves us and has freed us from our sin and has freed us from death and the one who delivers us from the corruption of the fall. You see, God alone is our hope. God alone is our hope. And that's what this table is all about. And so come with me, let's talk about this. I mean, as we come to this table this is a table that's been spread for us by our God to remind us that he is our hope. It's a table that our God has given to us to remind us that he will return. And what is he like? He's one who gave himself for us, body and blood, so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be welcomed into his presence. He's a God who serves us. He's a God who also fights for us. He's a warrior king who defeats all of his and all of our enemies. And he spreads this table with us and invites us to come to him, not, not to be afraid of him, but to come near to him so that he might feed us, he might feast with us, he might celebrate with us because he loves us. And he invites us to come not in our glory, but to come and rest in his. And so we come to lift our cups, not to ourselves, not to anything, but to him. Because God alone is our hope. God alone is our hope. Would you say that one last time with me? God alone is our hope. Therefore, I invite you to rise and to lift up your hearts.